Now, um, unless you are hiding in the attic this week, you must know that our former President Donald Trump was indicted in a Florida federal court in a stunning and historic 49-page, 37-count indictment. It asserts he violated various federal laws involving national security, top-secret documents. Um, We're going to put politics aside today because everyone has an opinion about politics and about, you know, selective prosecutions and all of those things, but I want to stay in the legal lane today, and I want to break down this indictment a little bit more than maybe the news has done so far. And with us to do that is David Haas. He is a former prosecutor out of Florida. He's now an experienced criminal defense attorney in the Florida federal and state courts. He teaches. He's sought out for legal commentary by the national media. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. It's nice to be on, and happy Sunday to you. Happy Sunday, and I hope you you send some nice, warm Florida weather our way. We sure could use it. Um, It's definitely warmer down here than it is. It's got to be. All right, so this indictment, and I encourage everyone to read it. Even if you don't like the fact that he was indicted, if you do like the fact he was indicted, read it, because it's very interesting. It's very long. It's very detailed. I want to ask you, David, are you surprised at the details and the photos and all of the supporting facts that are in there, even recorded phone calls, which normally don't appear in indictment, right? Well, well, you know, I'll give you the great legal answer, as you know, which is it depends. Um, <laughs> you know, what I think is most sort of stunning about this is the level of detail that exists that really can support each of these charges and the variety of what I would consider sort of primary sourced information where you have, you know, direct text messages or direct pictures that were taken uh, of the storage of the documents or direct recordings or even the lawyers uh, who were Mr. Trump's, you know, direct notes of conversations when they're instructed to do things. So the level of specificity, um, I, I think, was necessary in a case like this if, if you, you know, so, you're going to see a speaking indictment in order to be able to, you know, feather out some of those uh, specific allegations. Um, and so I'm, I'm not surprised that it's in there. I am surprised at the level of detail that does exist. And one of the things that uh, the pundits were talking about prior to this indictment coming down was the, the difficulty in proving intent, which is always hard for prosecutors because it's hard to prove why you know, what someone's intent is to get into their head. Does this mm-hmm. indictment to you spell this out a little more clearly than you thought would be would be there? Well, you know, it, there, there were a number of questions going into this indictment. You know, how did he know what was in there? You know, it's obviously mixed into to tens of thousands of other pages. Um, and so, you know, the intent then, and, and I think, where it is differentiated, at least legally, from some of the other more popular cases that are in the news right now, whether it's Joe Biden or Mike Pence or even Hillary from a few years ago, and their you know possession of, of classified documents. What is different here is both the lengths to which he wanted to conceal the documents, the lengths to which he lied about the possession of the documents, and the extent to which he was, you know, basically do anything but give the documents back, all while, you know, publicly stating that he was fully cooperating, um, which clearly isn't entirely true. 
And, you know, we say this a lot in the law, but sometimes it's not the acts that are necessarily the worst part of a crime, but it's the cover-up and the lying and the obfuscating and the obstructing and the lying to government employees and those types of things that can really anger the government and, and get and get the person in trouble. And that's kind of my well, read on you're absolutely correct, but here, remember, you, you've got the charging of the willful retention of documents, and so there's going to be some overlap between, you know, what is intentionally, you know, knowing it's there, and then if you're intentionally retaining the documents, you know, lying about their not <laughs> their existence or moving them around before there's you know searches, that goes to the willfulness element of what the government's going to have to prove. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about one section of the indictment that has Donald Trump alleging uh, Donald Trump is showing a document to somebody at a country club. And I'm going to ask you, David, what, what that means and how serious it is and how important that evidence might be in this prosecution. But I'm going to take a break now. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. Welcome back. We're talking to David Haas. He is a former prosecutor out of Florida. He's now an experienced criminal defense attorney in Florida State and Federal Courts. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and weighing in. Uh, when we broke, I, I was talking about a portion of the indictment that alleges that Mr. Trump uh, was talking to, I believe it was an author uh, at one in a country club and was t- actually talking and disclosing a certain document. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what you make of that evidence? Sure. So uh, what you're referencing is is stated early on in the indictment where Mr. Trump is uh, supposedly, I guess, talking to uh, an autobiographer from Mark Meadows. Um, The name isn't mentioned in the indictment. Uh, DOJ doesn't mention non-charged parties' names in the indictment, but that's apparently who's recorded it is. And there's an audio-recorded meeting where, um, at least allegedly, Mr. Trump is disclosing that there's Uh, a plan of attack um, that was prepared for him by the Department of Defense and a senior military official. Um, Trump allegedly then goes on to say that it was highly confidential and secret, which are technically two different levels of classification, but he gets into whether he could have declassified it as president, but now he can't. Uh, So it's still a secret. And again, that circles back to, again, a few different elements that, you know, Trump has put out sort of leading up to the indictment as defenses, which he's, he could just sort of, you know, glaze over something and it would become declassified. And two, again, the willful retention of, of something that is uh, classified or defense information. So it, it's in there. I think it accomplishes multiple purposes. And again, some of this could be Trump just blustering his way through a conversation. Um You know, you don't know if the prosecutors have identified this specific document um, in sort of the trove of other documents that are that are there, or if it's just a recording uh, that's in there to show knowledge. You know, I um, again, politics aside, these are very serious allegations. Um, and I've heard people say on various news outlets, well, he didn't give them to a foreign country. You know, we haven't been blown up yet. No harm, no foul. What's the big deal? I mean, how serious are these legal are these are these laws i mean espionage act obstruction obstruction of a proceeding false statements how how serious are these for donald trump so 
So most of these offenses are, are punishable by up to uh, a maximum 20 years or a maximum of 10 years, depending on which ones we're talking about. But, you know, as you sort of put on a common sense hat, by definition, documents that, that the president would have had access to or things that he would have been reviewing would be the most sensitive and the most secure in the nation. Um, you know, whether they're talking about nuclear secrets or human sources, you know, whatever usually makes its way, I would presume. I've never been president, probably won't be, but those are going to be the most serious never say never. Uh, types of documents. <laughs> right. Uh, the most serious types of documents that the government has and, and creates. You know, one of the things that is difficult to tell from the indictment, and I don't know if it will be shown or, or not shown, is, you know, which documents are, are, are gone or missing. Um, you know, is there evidence of that? It, it's not in the indictment, but, you know, sort of getting into the motive of why Trump, you know, would have held or, or maintained these. You know, I think there's a variety of different ideas that he could have had about them um, and their use, but. You know, I, I had a clearance when I was a federal prosecutor. Um, the level of background check and security that goes into even printing something is incredibly arduous and, and, and sensitive, as it should be. Um, so, you know, again, I don't think the over-classification issue, you know, these are going to be documents that have been vetted through the SEPA procedures that can be redacted for court use and, you know, you know, we'll probably learn a little bit more about him uh, as the trial comes, but most of this is going to be you know, heavily redacted. So we'll know the subject matter of the documents, but we certainly won't know the ins and outs of them because by publishing them in a court of law, even to a jury, would be a violation of security, national security, arguably. Is that what you're saying? Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, right. and, you know, to let you know sort of how, how classified are these you know, even what I found fascinating, again, is one of the documents that's referenced, one of the redactions, which is, you know, the redaction itself was a classified redaction, and that was basically doubly redacted, um, because even the redaction was sensitive information. So th- these are going to be, you know, the worst of the worst or the best of the best kinds of documents that the government has, you know, exposing our weaknesses and espousing on our our strength. Some of the critics of this indictment say that attorneys for Trump were forced to testify and that somehow that violated the attorney-client privilege. Can you simply explain to our listeners attorney-client privilege and whether or not these kinds of conversations, depending on, you know, what's going on here, why they may not be covered by that privilege? Sure. So, uh, you know, most folks understand that when you meet with an attorney, uh, whether, whether you're hiring the attorney or not, even just that initial conversation, if you're seeking the counsel of an attorney, those those conversations are privileged. And it's incredibly important that they stay privileged. I'm a defense attorney and, and you know, my conversations with my clients, uh, I'll, I'll routinely kick out a mother or brother or spouse because the, the privilege doesn't exist if there's another person there. Same holds true for Mr. Trump. The the exception that has been um, litigated in this case is what is referred to as the crime-fraud exception, which is if the attorney is asked to commit a crime or asked to further a crime, 
um, or is disclosing sort of an ongoing crime, a court can weigh in, which is my understanding of what happened here, and can say that those, com- you know, what were deemed confidential at the time, those conversations are no longer privileged, and uh, a judge has ruled in this case that certain conversations that Mr. Trump had with his lawyers at the time were under the crime fraud exception. So they've been deemed, you know, it can still be challenged, and, and I'm sure the defense will litigate that some more. But these have been found to be subject to the crime fraud exception. And so at a trial, you know, at least as of now, I would expect Mr. Trump's attorneys to be testifying against him about the substantive nature of those conversations uh, because their notes, which were, were accessed by the government with court approval in this case, um, are, are part of the indictment. The, the notes, the, the questions and the things that were being discussed have been you know, again, with a great level of specificity uh, detailed in the indictment. Let's talk about the jury pool. I haven't heard anyone really talk about this, but um, as we know, as trial attorneys, when you're ultimately trying a case, right from the beginning, you start thinking about who's going to be on my jury and how am I going to focus this case and how am I going to pre-try this case to get what I need so I can convince the jury of my position, both sides, whether it's a civil or criminal case. What do we, and, and in this case, it's really crucial in my view because, you know, Trump is very polarized. I mean, you either love him or you don't love him. And there are people who probably would never convict him if, if uh, picked on the jury. I, I, I don't know that, but I, that's my guess. So, what do we know about the jury pool in this jurisdiction? So uh, it, it's it's my hometown, so I know it fairly well. I grew up in South Florida, and, and even though I'm in Orlando, which is the middle district of Florida, and, and I do cases all over the country, I've had cases down in the southern district. Um, it is really a, a cross-section of, of the political spectrum, and, and this is where I think you, you do get into some politics of what the jury pool will look like, as much as there will be some people on there that will, you know, absolutely be you know fiercely loyal to to president trump there will be people on there that will absolutely go the other way and and think he's guilty before they've heard anything too the jury selection process is going to be difficult um getting individuals who don't have an opinion or have an opinion but can set that opinion aside in judging the evidence is going to be the challenge no matter where this case was was charged, um, I think venue is most appropriate in the Southern District, and, and I think prosecutors got that right. But you know, if it's going to be in Palm Beach, you know, Palm Beach is a, you know a little bit more bluer than than other aspects and uh, other sp- spots in Florida. Miami has uh, gotten a little bit redder, but uh, it looks like this particular case will be coming up more to the northern part of of uh, South Florida, so Palm Beach, Fort Pierce. And so you'll you'll have um, you know probably a fairly even split with uh, individuals and, and jurors who are very pro-Trump and very anti-Trump. Uh, David, is it is it possible for you to hang on with us for one more segment? Of course. Oh, okay. Because uh, we got to take a, a break, uh, and we have got some news. But I, I've got some listeners who have some really good questions, and I've got a few more questions for you. And this is just such an important uh, event in our history that I think it's really good to have these kinds of things explained. But thank you for doing that. On the other side of the news, we're going to continue our conversation with David Haas. He is a criminal defense lawyer in Florida who's weighing in on the Trump indictment. You're listening to the Karen Conti Show on WGN. Welcome back. 
We're here with David Haas. He is a very experienced criminal defense attorney down in Florida. He was a former prosecutor, and we're talking about the Donald Trump indictment from a legal standpoint, not political. Uh, David, thank you so much for hanging on with us. There's just so much to talk about. My listeners have some very good questions. Um, The first question was, let's just say the court reverses the issue of attorney-client privilege. We just got done talking about the idea that the federal uh, court uh, probably... Uh, ordered Trump's attorneys to testify about certain conversations because they uh, went to the idea of Trump discussing the commission of a crime or the concealing of a crime. And my listener is asking, what if that gets reversed? Is the case still provable if the attorneys don't testify? From what you have seen in the indictment, what do you think? First, I think that's a great question. And I do think that's something that'll be challenged. Um, you know, the the way I look at, at this particular case, and, and you can look at 37, 38 counts differently, they, the government's sort of layering up various types of evidence for each count. And I think one of the types of evidence that they're layering up to prove the case is going to be those conversations, that, you know, with uh, the pre- that Mr. Trump had with his attorneys uh, about moving and shuffling the boxes. I do think it's still going to probably be provable. And again, I don't have all the evidence just like any, anybody, but um, what what sort of jumps off at me is going to be the text messages that are from the co-defendant's phone where he himself is talking about relocating boxes, you know, pursuant to Trump's requests and shuffling things around. And there's going to be video of it. So even if the statements directly to, to Mr. Trump's lawyers get sort of kicked out, um, there's going to be, I think, various other types of evidence to be able to establish that there, there was you know, the the willful retention and, and oppression of those things. The, um, this is my question. The the uh, cohort, uh, the uh, aide, um, Walter, I forgot his last name, but he, he's also been a dad. Yeah. yeah, no, and no one's really talking a whole lot about him. But but what do you what do you think? How, why did they loop him in? Do you think they I mean, I know we're just speculating, but do you think the government approached him and said, listen, we need you to testify? You, you know, we're going to charge you unless you, we give you immunity and you testify about you were under the direction of the president, former president to move these boxes. Do you think that might have gone on? I, I know he was interviewed because it's it's one of the counts in the indictment for when he makes false statements about moving of the boxes. He, he answered that no, that that didn't occur. So there there is some sort of an, an interview, and it, it's mentioned in the indictment that he had counsel at the time that interview was given. So he was interviewed without what is referred to as a proper letter, even with the proper letter, he, he was arguably not not truthful about it so the government can use it so there may have been an effort to uh, approach him uh, you know, get his sort of cooperation on board um, he, he's not critical to proving the case I think again that comes to a variety of other evi- you know types of evidence that are available to the government here um, you know he I, I'd read or seen on the news I think that, that this individual Nauda was with Trump yesterday as he was on a campaign trail. So again, there's no daylight there yet. And we've seen that with, with individuals who have been loyal to Mr. Trump before. Um, so he, he may, uh, you know, break free and, and try to get uh, a plea on his own, or he may you know, choose not to. I, I actually looked up before we went on the air just to see if he'd filed uh, or a lawyer filed an appearance on his behalf. 
that hasn't happened yet. So um, I think those are still objects in motion from the government and, and Mr. Nada. Another listener had another great question, which is, had what do you think? Had uh, Donald Trump returned the documents as soon as they were demanded? Oh, yep, yeah, I had them. They're in my shower. They're in my ballroom. They're in my bedroom. And he had returned them and, and had been truthful about returning all of them. Do you think he still would have been indicted? Again, we're speculating, but what is your best thought just knowing the, how this type of thing works? Well, I think we can we can pretty clearly say he probably wouldn't have been. Uh, and, and the basis for that is really three other individuals who don't look like and, and have been cleared of this. When you look at Hillary Clinton, you look at Joe Biden, and you look at Mike Pence. All three of them, uh, you know, at one time or another, possessed a variety of different classified documents, um, probably not on the same level of sensitivity as, as what's being discussed here. Um but all three of them cooperated with the investigation, which is not what happened here. All three of them returned the documents, which is not what happened here. The government fought this for about a year and a half. And, you know, so so again, what you can differentiate about a willful retention of documents, I, I think Mr. Trump, I, I feel pretty confident in saying he would not have been charged if he would have you know, done a thorough review and then returned the documents. I, I have to agree with you. I do have to agree with you, and um, which kind of takes away takes away that some of the arguments that that he's being like kind of uh, picked on because you know once the government says like do something and you know you should do it even if you are a former president even if you are a rich man uh, it it it's it I, I don't know it, it seems to me that the lawyers must not have known that he had these documents because I don't know about you I mean you don't risk your law license for your clients. You just don't because you've spent a lot of time and a, a lot of money. Maybe some others do. <laughs> no, and, and yeah, and, and, and you you have seen people around Donald Trump, Mike Cohen, maybe Rudy Giuliani have you know did did just that. You know, they thought their loyalty what meant more than their law degrees. And unfortunately for them, you know, that's gonna cost them. But most lawyers don't won't do it, you know. Um but anyway, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that this this we would not be here but for him somehow thinking that he was above it and he could just retain what he wanted. It does hurt the the sort of the Trump argument and and the Trump sort of um, following to say, you know, why not invite Hillary? And and really the the conduct is very different um, when you look at what they did. So I I think that's, you know, a difficult argument, one to get into a courtroom for for purposes of proof in this case. The one... The whataboutisms are not going to really come into play, at least in, in the legal proceeding, maybe in, in jurors' minds. Right. But uh, I think and, that'll be separate here. And I got one quick question, and then I'll let you go sure. to live out your your Sunday with us. Um, let the this judge is going to want to control the the scheduling. I, I I know federal judges, and I know how they how they are. They want to keep things moving. Now, Trump is going to say, listen, I can't be meet this deadline because I have a campaign uh, rally or I have this, that or the other thing. Do you think this judge is going to accommodate Donald Trump in his campaign uh, obligations? Or do you think this judge is going to enforce deadlines without regard for that? Well, I've I've got proceedings in in front of Judge Cannon on on other matters. Um, She is very diligent with her deadlines once they get set. 
and so I think the question about when those proceedings get set it really for, for Trump's attorneys is going to be managing uh, the other criminal case that is in New York. There's deadlines there. Uh, obviously, the campaign and, you know, the elections and, and debates and those types of things. Um, how friendly this judge is t- towards that uh, sort of remains to be seen. Uh, I think, you know, there's there's benefits to both sides if it goes sooner rather than later. And, you know, that may not be what, what Mr. Trump thinks. But, um, you, you know, getting this behind you going into a campaign might might be better if you think you're going to win. Um, you know, again, try not to get into politics, but. If he, if he did nothing wrong and he didn't go to trial and get it behind him and acquitted, then that sort of you know clears the ramp going into the election. Right, right. David, thank you so much for joining me. David Haas, he's an attorney in Florida. Come on, I should give out your contact information. Sure, I'm happy to, and thanks for having me. Uh, on my website, Haas Law, P is in Peter, LLC. Uh, my number is 407-755-7675. And... Uh, I do cases all over the country, so you, anybody with a federal case, I doubt they're listening, but if they are, <laughs> you can always call. <laughs> Great, and, and and your name will be uh, on our podcasted uh, segment, and you'll you'll see the full spelling, and uh, and you can get it from there, or, or you can always call my office at 312-332-7800, and I'm happy to give it out. David, thank you so much for joining us, and maybe you'll uh, join us again on a status update. Any Anytime you want me. Thank you for having me. I all right, take it. care. Uh, t- take care.